Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, we're delighted that you've come to join with us today. We come here together to worship God. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Duncan. I serve as pastor here, and uh, I would like to invite you to stay behind afterwards for tea and coffee. Um, and in fact, we'll be staying for lunch as well afterwards. Um, and if you're able to stay, you'd be very welcome, and it would be good to meet you. Thank you, Shirley. Good morning. Uh, reading today from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 1 to 25. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide, couldn't she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the throat to, um, to water the father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? He, they said, 
an Egyptian delivered us out of the land, out of the hand of the shepherd, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Sipporah. He gave, she gave him, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We do not know what the circumstances were when King David wrote those opening words to Psalm 13. But I reckon probably most of us here can recognize what he's saying. there are times when things can just seem so dark. Perhaps dark in our circumstances are actually just, just dark in our own heads. So much so that we think maybe God's forgotten us. Why do you hide your face from me, God? And that was certainly the case for the Israelites in ancient Egypt. They had traveled to Egypt generations before to find relief from a famine. And then, through the xenophobic fear of a new pharaoh in Egypt, they were put into slavery. In the name of curbing their dangerous population growth, the pharaoh ordered the murder of all of their baby boys. The heartache that must have struck those families the darkness of those days must surely have caused them to say, how long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Chapter 2 of the book of Exodus is where we begin to turn the corner. God has not been mentioned really, uh, not mentioned as directly doing anything, and that's the case for much of the chapter that Shirley just read for us too. We see here the story of the amazing preservation of baby Moses. We see the surprising stalling of the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. But crucially, we learn that God has been behind it all. And we'll see that just because we cannot discern what God is doing at the time, just because the darkness is particularly thick, when it comes to his people, God sees and God knows. 
Now, the devil is cunning. Ever since God made the promise to Adam and Eve that from the offspring of the woman, a rescuer would come, we find that the offspring of God's people is a consistent target of the devil's attacks. We saw this last week, as I mentioned. Every baby boy was to be cast into the River Nile. And not only does that seem to threaten the population growth of the Israelites, it seems to surely jeopardize the very promise of God. How could a deliverer arise when no baby boys are allowed to live? But as we've seen already in this book, there is nothing, nothing that can stand in God's way, not even the murderous laws of the king of Egypt. And so here we see God's rescuer comes from the shadow of death. God's rescuer comes from the shadow of death. Those first 10 verses of the chapter, we have recounted to us the origins of Moses, one of the great figures of Bible history. He will be used by God to deliver God's people. But to do that, he himself needs to first be delivered because hanging over his head is the sentence of death. Both his parents are descendants of Jacob's son, Levi, and the mother, when he was born, she saw in verse 2 that he was a fine child or a good child. Now, I don't think that she saw some distinctive mark upon him that meant that somehow this child needed to be protected more than any other. I mean, that doesn't quite fit with human nature at all, does it? I think, actually, she saw what almost every parent sees. This child is a good gift from God to be cherished and protected at all costs, not handed over to the state authorities to be killed. So, she hides the baby till she can hide him no longer. And then she takes a huge risk. She puts him in the river. You know, the very place where it had been decreed that he should be drowned, she places him in the river in a basket. And the word for basket there, verse 3, the only other place it's used is repeatedly as the term to describe Noah's ark. She put him in a little ark. And the stuff that she lines it with, this tar-like substance, is the same thing we're told Noah lined his ark with. And so here you have this same picture emerges that in the, very, in the very waters that should have destroyed him, he was kept safe, protected in this ark. She places him in the reeds close to the river bank, and it's almost as if she says, I can't watch. I cannot watch to see what goes on. And so his sister is there keeping watch. There's something so powerful about this narrative here. And the thing that I find so powerful about it is the prominence of women. You know, just think about this. Pharaoh has said the way to minimize the threat of having all of these Hebrews in Egypt is to get rid of all of their sons. He doesn't care if the daughters live, he sees no threat in the daughters. But boy, has he underestimated God. And boy, has he underestimated daughters, because it's daughters that God uses to undermine his plans utterly. 
the midwives in chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, all of the players are women. Moses' mum, Moses' sister, and of course, verse 5, Pharaoh's own daughter. And so it is good for us to celebrate the gift of mothers, the gift of women, because where would God's plans be without them? In fact, where would any of us be without them? Where would the ministries of this church be without them? God uses women powerfully in His purposes. And you read through the Gospels, and it screams out at us again. So Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe at the riverbank, and she hears this crying, presumably, coming from the basket in the reeds. Now, she has just come from the palace where the wicked plan to murder baby boys was devised, and yet what what happens when she sees him? Verse 6, she took pity on him. I think we're supposed to smile at how things pan out here. Moses' sister emerges from the shadows and asks the princess, do you want me to go and get a Hebrew mother who could nurse him? And the result is Moses' mom is given the baby back. She is told to care for him. She is paid to care for him. And she now has the royal seal of protection over him. Well, how on earth would all of that manage to fall into place? What a remarkable series of coincidences. Or are they? Because there's more of this to run, isn't there? Because eventually Moses is handed back to Pharaoh's daughter when the child grew older, verse 10. Best guesses are he was about seven. Time for him to enter into Egyptian education. And handed back, and there's a significance, isn't there? She named him Moses. This naming of him is publicly her declaring him to be her son, her adopted son. And I guess there's a question hangs over Moses at this point, isn't there? Who is this Moses? Is he an Israelite? Or is he Pharaoh's grandson? Who's he going to be? In the days of the early church, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, delivered a sermon that got him killed. And in that sermon, he recounts a whistle-stop history of Israel, including some words about Moses, and particularly about Moses at this point in his life that we've reached. Listen to these words. You find them in Acts 7. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. We get a sense of what Moses understood about himself from that further detail. That here he did have some insight that he was to be a rescuer of some sorts for his people. And I want you to look with me at what kind of man Moses was. 
What is it that motivates him in verses 11 and 12? It is he goes out and he sees the oppression of his people. Uh, Literally, it's his brothers. You know, he, he regards this as his family he's seeing being cruelly treated. And when he sees this, he just has to intervene. Then in verse 13, he intervenes again when he sees two Hebrews fighting. And who does he confront? You see that in verse 3? The one who was in the wrong. And again, when he's fled Egypt, he finds these seven daughters of the priest of Midian. They're being chased away from the well by the shepherds in verse 17. But Moses stands up, intervenes, and saves them, and waters their flock. There is something important that Moses gets, something in his heart that is is right, isn't there, that he hates to see injustice, and he will intervene to stop injustice when he sees it. And what doesn't stand out to us, I suppose, in, in, in Exodus 2 is the time frame of things here. Moses was 40 when he killed the Egyptian. But rather than God use the 40-year-old Moses to deliver his people, he lets Moses go out into the wilderness of Midian for another 40 years. So there's something missing, right? Moses gets this thing about justice and oppression. He hates it. He's even willing to kill a man to prevent it. But there's something he doesn't yet get. He's not yet ready to be God's rescuer. He needs to learn that God's rescuer must rescue in God's way. God's rescuer must rescue in God's way. Because you see, for Moses, killing the Egyptian, burying him in the sand, that's very much a child of Pharaoh kind of thing to do. This is how Pharaoh gets things done. He just kills things that are in his way. God has a lot to teach Moses. The way to rescue his people will not be for Moses to rely upon his own brute force. And I have no doubt that him heading out into the wilderness, becoming a husband, becoming a father, how he will spend 40 years as a shepherd, These are the things that he will have to learn if he is truly to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt. If he is going to protect and provide and direct a helpless, directionless flock, then God's going to have to teach him some things. Jesus' followers had a pretty clear idea of what kind of rescuer they thought they needed. One who had military might. One who could come and fight fire with fire. They were to be surprised. But they shouldn't have been. For God doesn't fight his battles according to man's rules. Because you see, the battles that God fights are on a different plane altogether. The opposition of kings and armies and soldiers all seems quite imposing. But the greatest battle that is being fought is a spiritual one. 
at its most basic level, that's true for you and I as well, not just for the situation in Israel 2,000 years ago or three and a half thousand years ago. It's the situation in this room. Whatever we think the most pressing battles that need to be fought today are, God would say to us, the most pressing battle is a spiritual one because you are a spiritual being. You have been made in God's image, made to know God, who is spirit. But we have a spiritual problem, our sin. Anything we do or say or think that demotes God from being God and elevates us to being greater than Him, then there we have sin. Because we have been made for something other than that. We've been made to reflect just who God is, His supreme importance. And so you or I may have all manner of problems right now. They may seem far more pressing than this slightly abstract subject I have ventured into. But don't be fooled. Jesus Christ, God Himself, came as a man, lived perfect obedience to His Father in heaven, gave Himself up to death on the cross because He was convinced that humanity's greatest problem was a spiritual one. He died for sinners. He was suffering in the place of all those who will come to Him in faith, and He was raised again on the third day, victorious over death. And I say all of that because it's very easy for us to then get this badly wrong as God's people, especially when we think about the mission of the church, which we spent some time thinking about today. We think that we need to step into this world and fight fire with fire, that we're to be engaging in some kind of, of battle on man's terms, and sometimes forgetting that our greatest need and the greatest battle that is raging is a spiritual one. Jesus has entrusted His mission in the world to the church. He has committed the overhaul of the world to the church. But how is the church going to do that? And we so often think in the same categories as everyone else who's trying to change the world. It's about speaking up against injustice. It's about doing good in the community. It's about doing our bit to care for the environment. I mean, in doing these things, the world will surely be that little bit closer to fulfilling all of the potential that God has made it with. Now, all of these things are good and they're worthy. You can make a difference in the world with those things, but you will miss, if you only have those things, humanity's greatest problem, the spiritual problem. If we overlook that, then we actually miss the primary mission of the church, to go into all the world and make disciples, make followers of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And so we do look again at what we mentioned earlier in the service. How is it that the community of Bankery 
or the community of a boyne is going to be transformed. Our conviction is from the pages of Scripture that it will be by the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ, depending on Him as we proclaim it. The end of Exodus chapter 2 is essential, essential reading. And I say that because, as I touched on earlier, up till that point, God hasn't done anything, or we've not been told that He's done anything. Are the Israelites just at the mercy of random events? Well, not at all. Moses, who writes these first five books of the Bible, he tells us in verses 23 to 25 that God is working long before anyone notices. God is working long before anyone notices. Verse 23 and perhaps mentions something that had brought hope to the Israelites. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Well, there's surely some hope there, isn't there? Will this lead into some relief from the bondage that they're in? But not at all. They groan, they cry out because of their hardship. Nothing changes. I don't know if we're to see here that it took this long before they cried out to God. But I am sure that we're to see that they, they did cry out to Him. Those prayers for rescue came up to God, as it says there. And verses 24 to 25 are truly magnificent. Because here God is described as doing four things. The first thing He's described as doing is hearing. God heard their groaning. It's easy for Christians to forget that there is a difference between complaining and praying. There is a difference between complaining and praying. Um, I could give you countless examples of times when I have been unhappy with how some things are going, with circumstances maybe being difficult, and um, often I would tend to seek out other people and we could complain about it together. People who will listen to me and let me moan for a little minute. I want to ask you the question, does God hear me when I do that? Well, the answer is yes, He does, right? I mean, what does He not hear? God, who is present everywhere, hears everything. But it's very different from praying. When His people pray, something different is happening. He hears them, but in a different way. And I think there's something to that here. Their groaning moved beyond groaning to crying out for help, verse 23. Who else did they have to cry out to? Just God. But because they are His people, this is more than just God listening in to their conversation. This is them speaking to Him directly as one who has a relationship with Him. And in response to what He hears, it says the second thing that God does is that He heard, he heard and then He remembered. He remembered His covenant 
with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. That's the rest of verse 24. It is not that God had forgotten about this covenant that he'd made, but it's here as he hears his people pray, he then expresses his commitment to follow through on what he had promised to this family. Because you see, it's on this basis that the Israelites can pray to God, because God has made a promise to them, and so they pray, seeking for him to come through on that promise. Oh Lord, it was not your promise that we would be stuck endlessly in slavery in Egypt. God remembers his covenant. God doesn't forget them. And Christian, he doesn't forget you either. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? When we've prayed those words, in fact, those may be words that resonate with you today, but God never forgets you. If you belong to Jesus, you have been brought into a new covenant where God promises to be your God and to make you His people, where Jesus promises that all who are weary and heavy laden, if they come to Him, they'll find rest. Come to God today in your despair and seek Him, because if you belong to Jesus, He has promised to hear you. He will not forget His promise to sustain you all the way to glory. And when we look back, as we're doing here in Exodus 2, looking at a history that has already unfolded, well, it's then that we see it, don't we? we see that God was already at work. Long before they had cried out to Him, God was already at work. In this population growth in Egypt, God was at work. In this preservation of Moses, in the reeds, in the moving of the heart of Pharaoh's daughter, in sending Moses out to Midian to meet his wife Zipporah and his wise father-in-law Ruel, in having a son God was at work. And this is the story of right throughout history. When Jesus appeared, when he appeared and, and, and started his ministry, it was after 30 years of obscurity where he was being prepared to be the Savior of the world. Before that, it was nine months in the womb of Mary where he was being physically prepared to come into the world. And before that, it was this complicated history of the descendants of Abraham, that all of it was God's work to bring about the rescue of sinners, that He might bring His Savior into the world at that time to reach lost sinners. Dear friends, there are two other things God's described as doing here. He sees and He knows. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He sees our greatest need before we do, and He sees it far more clearly than we do as well. 
Jesus would say when teaching us how to pray, He would say, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And as God's people here in Bankery Christian Fellowship, we're looking around at our community and we're seeing so many people who don't have the hope of knowing Jesus. We see a community like a Boyne, and best as we can tell, there is no church that will proclaim the gospel there. And we're looking ahead and seeing where we would love to carry the gospel, what we would love to see happen. But how on earth will we get there? And these are words of assurance for us as a church family today. God sees. God knows. And we have to wonder, don't we, so what has God already been doing? Before we get there, what has He already been doing? We won't find out unless we go. We won't find out unless we step forward with God, confident that He does see and know. And so today we turn to Him, we rededicate ourselves to Him, we serve Him, we pray to Him, we reach out to others, we invite people to come, we share the gospel as we have opportunity, and we look to the Lord to save people, to build the church, just like He's promised to. These stories from the history of Israel are given to us to assure us that God always comes through on His promises, even when His people are difficult. He comes through on His promises and how much we need that. As we look forward to uncertainty, we know that there will come a day when we will look back on these days and say, ah, look what God was doing and we couldn't see it. Praise God, He sees and He knows. Amen.